Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current release. This week, we're going full-on superhero by looking first at a movie that serves as the Big Bang for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, then at that universe's latest offering. So fire up the electromagnets that keep you alive and let's take to the skies. Tasha, tell us about this week's selections. This week we're pairing the 2008 film Iron Man with the recently released Captain America Civil War. The connection is pretty obvious. Both come from Marvel Studios. Both revolve around classic Marvel superheroes. Both even feature Iron Man, a.k.a. billionaire industrialist playboy Tony Stark, as played by Robert Downey Jr., One tells an origin story that doubles as the first adventure of its titular hero, a morally dubious weapons manufacturer who becomes an armor-plated do-gooder after he's kidnapped and has to face some hard truths about the business that made his family fortune. The other picks up loose plot threads from the two Captain America films that preceded it and the two Avengers films. And for that matter, all three Iron Man films. Oh yeah, and also Ant-Man. And it sets up new solo films from Spider-Man and Black Panther coming soon to a theater near you while leaving unanswered questions for the next MCU offerings to pick up. They're both very much products of the same movie factory, but the latter is a much more features-packed upgrade, operating in ways that seemed unimaginable a mere eight years ago when Iron Man was released. It's a bit like the difference between a first-generation iPod and the smartphones of today. But has anything been lost in the move from the relative simplicity of Iron Man to the tangled, overlapping narratives of Civil War? We'll get to that question, but first, let's visit the recent past. That in mind, I humbly present the crown jewel of Stark Industries' Freedom Line. It's the first missile system to incorporate our proprietary repulsor technology. They say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. That's how Dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. Find an excuse to let one of these off the chain, and I personally guarantee you the bad guys won't even want to come out of their caves.
your consideration, the Jericho. Here's something to keep in mind in our superhero-saturated cinematic moment. In 2008, Iron Man was a gamble. Admittedly, there have been bigger gambles, but let's take a moment to survey the state of superhero films circa 2008. After the subgenre kicked into high gear with the 2000 release of Bryan Singer's X-Men and the runaway success of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man in 2002, there were hits like Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, there were misses like Catwoman and Ang Lee's Hulk, and there were a whole lot of films that fell somewhere in between, movies like Fantastic Four and Ghost Rider, that were able to make a little money and maybe even scare up a sequel without earning much love. Iron Man was the first film in Marvel's new strategy of focusing on movies made directly by Marvel Studios. Where before Marvel had licensed its creations to other studios, Marvel Studios, and what would become known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, was designed to keep control in-house, in much the same way that Marvel Comics worked, building an interlocked group of movies that would take place in a shared world, guided by the company's overarching plans and sensibility. There were obstacles. Marvel enjoyed considerable success during its licensing phase, but this also meant that some of its best-known heroes weren't available to the new MCU. Spider-Man, the X-Men, and the Fantastic Four, for instance, were all out of play. That left characters like Iron Man and, a little down the line, Thor and Captain America. These weren't exactly B-listers, but they weren't the company's most high-profile names either. Everyone knows Spider-Man is Peter Parker. Before 2008, if you ask most people who Iron Man's alter ego was, you'd likely get a lot of blank stares. Marvel also didn't have that much money to spend, relatively speaking, so it picked up talent it could afford. Robert Downey Jr. was still polishing an image tarnished by history of addiction, legal troubles, and a stint in prison. If, even at the time, it was obvious his gift at suggesting a wounded soulfulness while tossing up acerbic one-liners made him perfect for Stark, he was anything but a sure bet at the box office. Ditto John Favreau, the film's director. He'd only directed three films since making his breakthrough as a writer and co-star of Swingers. Though the holiday comedy Elf delighted audiences, the effects-driven science fiction fantasy Zathura, the closest thing to Iron Man in Favreau's resume, had not. One more thing to factor in, beyond the scratch-and-dent quality of some of the talent, a screenplay no one could quite seem to nail. Yet Iron Man works not just in spite of those obstacles, but because of them. It's a film in which everyone clearly has something to prove. Downey lays on the leading man charm, making his often boorish character seem like a hero in the making from the first scene. Favreau leans into his strengths as a filmmaker. The action scenes are good, and the effects are impressive, but the looseness of the heavily improvised scenes between the action would ultimately become the most influential element on the MCU. Iron Man is a redemption story, one in which Tony Stark comes to realize the global consequences of his career when he literally comes face-to-face with his own weapons. But it surrounds the theme with considerable lightness, letting Downey and co-star Gwyneth Paltrow as a super-efficient, forever-underestimated Girl Friday Pepper Potts build a loose, easy chemistry. Even bad guy in disguise Obadiah Stane, played by Jeff Bridges, keeps it casual until his true plans get revealed. Favreau summoned up Robert Altman's name to describe the approach, which seems a little bit much, but in a different director's hands, this movie could have been either too self-serious or a campy trifle. It gets the balance right and sets the tone for what followed. Superheroics that are grounded in humanity. So everyone, we all watched Iron Man, and it was it was kind of a trip back through time, wasn't it? We had mm-hmm. we had MySpace references. <laughs> we had all okay, we, we had Terrence Howard as as James Rhodey. Flip phones uh, or James, sidekicks? Yeah, you know? no, no smartphones. Oh, that's right. There were yeah. there were sidekicks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, what'd you all think? 
I really enjoyed going back to it for uh, a lot of the reasons you laid out in your keynote there. Just it, f- I had to go back and check the running time as compared to current uh, <laughs> Marvel Cinematic Universe films because it felt so much faster. Even though it's it's not really, it's still it's it's a little short. It's like a little, it's just over two hours. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it moved really well, and I, I think I've gotten used to, particularly with the Avengers films and the Civil War film, which we'll talk about. Kind of a a feeling that you're settling in for, <laughs> you know, so, some some ups and downs. And the ups are going to be really good, but there's going to be, you know, a, a couple minutes where you're feeling a little tired. And I, I never felt that during Iron Man. It just, it, it went. I had the exact same reaction. Uh, it, it helps to have so many unwieldy <laughs> MCU films uh, to, to go back to Iron Man and appreciate, you know, how relatively simple and uncluttered it is, you know, you know relative to the mythology building that would happen uh, as the MCU started to develop. Uh, at the same time, it, it almost seems rudimentary now, uh, less ambitious than it seemed eight years ago. You know, there's not much to the plot. Tony Tony Stark becomes up. Iron Man fights Obadiah, and that's pretty much it. There's some things that happen in between, but it's a pretty simple plot. And we've spent so much time with Tony Stark in the two sequels, the two Avengers movies, and now Captain America Civil War, that some of the bloom was a little bit off the rose for me. <laughs> that said, Robert Downey Jr., uh, was and is an inspired choice to pay, play Tony Stark, uh, in part because of his verbal dexterity, and also because of the, uh, what you described, Keith, as you know, a, a pretty tough, sort of hard living history. Um, and, and and just I appreciate you appreciate the fact that that those are bigger factors than his physique or his age. Mm-hmm. And I know that his age has been been criticized, certainly recently. I mean, maybe I don't think so much at the time, but I think there's something right about this character who's been a playboy who's cruised through the early part of adulthood and now has reached a point where he can kind of you know reflect on things a little more and kind of see what he has wrought Uh, so i think it's critical that he be a little bit older yeah i think it works i mean he's a guy in an iron suit he's not you know he's not thor you know he's you know you don't have to buy that he's super muscular and certainly he's in better shape than than i am Um, (laughs) yeah i don't know when he's hammering uh in the in the cave in in afghanistan you know he's like all sweaty and grimy and he's like hammering on an anvil he's he's you know you get a little beefcake there i think (laughs) a little specifically thor-esque Yeah, yeah. given the, the the sweat and the hammer, right? But but I mean, you know, I actually think it works. Also, he kind of gets to be sort of in uh, a little older than the other Avengers in the later films. I think that mm-hmm. works too. You know, he's he's the first one in in this universe, and and kind of gets to be an older statement. I, it's kind of interesting to see the film that they're setting up the the sequels they're setting up. They don't make though, like you know, there's talk of him dealing with you know Tony Stark is an alcoholic and and the comics and. Uh, you know, there's sort of a famous run where, where he deals with that. And they're kind of set that up in this movie and they never come back to it. And, and, you know, in, in the sequels or, or the Avengers films too, you know, it's a, uh, I mean, you don't feel it missing because it's like his constantly swilling booze is just sort of a part of his, yeah. you know, his womanizing and his uh, like buying cars and, and Jackson Pollock's for fun and all of the stuff that he wrecks like really casually just to try. I mean, there's, there's this constant feel of he is a rich man to whom money means nothing and i think him like the way he drinks doesn't feel like it it's the beginning of a plot arc that isn't resolved so much as it's just kind of a part of his playboy lifestyle yeah sure that, that and that makes sense it doesn't really, yeah it doesn't feel like they they necessarily cut that off but you can kind of see that the road that future iron man's could have gone down if the whole mcu thing hadn't worked out if they were just pursuing this character and and without any sort of outside outside context tasha we never got your take on 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 how this looks uh you know 
well, 12 films down after this or whatever, <laughs> wherever we are now? I mean, like I just, as we're recording this, I, I just saw X-Men Apocalypse last night. Um, you know, we just had Batman versus Superman come out. We obviously just watched Civil War. Uh, Jen Cheney did this great piece for Uproxx about how we're in the middle of, of like peak superhero team. So it really felt interesting to dial back and, and see an origin story that I didn't already know by heart. I was not really very familiar with Iron Man, the character, unlike characters like Batman and Spider-Man, whose origin stories we've seen over and over until I'm sick of them. And going back to this story, it kind of reminded me of how satisfying and simple an origin story can be if it's not one where you're sitting there mentally ticking off the beats. Okay, they're coming out of Zorro, the theater. Okay, the gun is out. Okay, the pearls are flying through the air in slow motion. Here the pearls. Uh, Here come the pretzels. Um, So... It's just that after seeing all of these team movies over and over where like it, it counts as character development if somebody gets five lines over the course of a movie and they come in different moods, spending an entire movie just watching this one character is is really satisfying. And it's particularly satisfying because, as, as Scott pointed out, this is a pretty simple movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, an awful lot of it is just Tony Stark sitting at home tinkering with the next iteration of the suit or playing with the suit. And you get not just a sense of his character but a sense of how rapidly he's changing in the middle of this really traumatic moment in his life and i think in and of itself like this movie didn't necessarily need a villain as far as i was concerned i mean obadiah stain has a ridiculous name it's clear from (laughs) moment one that he's the bad guy both Mm -hmm. because of his ridiculous name and because he's played by jeff bridges and somebody has to be and because somebody has to be and because he's introduced as you know my my beloved and much trusted mentor and best friend of my my father, the weapons merchant. Also, and also, and also he's also bald. The, so yeah, yeah. And, and, and and you get like this. The montage includes like this magazine where where, where Obadiah is on the cover, and then another cover when uh, where when he's you have glowering. right where, where it's like it's like one of those old. Um, you know, Bush album covers where where uh, Ga- Gavin's in uh, in focus and everybody else is blurry. Obadiah is the blurry one in that uh, photograph. Yeah, he he just he he could he's have of, he's he could have evil guy. tattooed on his forehead and it wouldn't be more obvious. Sure, but then the film doesn't need to spend really much time like developing him because he's he's so much of like an afterthought. He he kind of represents Tony's past and and the past of Stark Industries and the idea of weapons manufacture entirely for profit. Uh, with this kind of veneer of lies about how this is on on behalf of the world. We're doing this on oh, behalf sure. of the world. Yeah. So, you know, he's already, it's entirely clear what he is already. We don't need to spend time with him. Well, and there's a secondary villain, which is something that it, it kind of became par for the course with the MCU movies, because there's the guy in Afghanistan, the the, the guys that kidnap him to the begin with. The Ten Rings. Yeah, well, yeah. Oh, really? Is that the name of the group, the Ten Rings? That is the that name of the group. Right, yeah. And uh, in fact, my, my husband, who knows more about comics than I do was the one who informed me that they're called the Ten Rings because of the Mandarin. The Mandarin mm-hmm. is the the evil villain who later shows up in the the Iron Man arc. And I mean, I'm not going to spoil that in case yeah. anybody hasn't seen it. But he was much more of a like a solid and like a solid presence and a magical force in the comics. Mm-hmm. And his Ten Rings had different powers, and there was a whole thing there. A little, a little not there, but yeah, I, I feel like it, it set up this pattern that the MCU would always go back to 
where there's kind of first a uh, an, an introductory villain that you get that, that before, a starter villain a starter villain yeah who may or may not be in cahoots with who turns out to be the big villain which in, in this case you know we find out that Obadiah is working with the Ten Rings um, but yeah so the uh, ratio of villains to heroes in the superhero or in the MCU is uh, quite skewed uh, which I'll get into in the second half, but yeah, I, I noticed that in this. Well, I mean, in part, the the first half villains are just kind of. I, I mean, there's this whole sort of the Middle East. Like the mm-hmm. villains are are this. Do they have a purpose? Is it ever articulated? Like no. what they it's, want? It's not. I mean, I I, I will they say you know it's it's set in Afghanistan in in 2008, and and you know there's images that you know very much evoke some of the hostage videos that came mm-hmm. out. Of time. So I don't think we're supposed to. I, I don't think it's hard to figure out what they're supposed to represent. Even they hate our freedom, right? They yeah. do hate. They do hate our freedom. And, and on one hand, I I kind of appreciated that because this was a real world conflict in a real world situation and this is you know however comic booky the connection it's still a connection you know uh and i feel like the mcu stuff has kind of moved away from that with someone getting more in the second half for sure but one thing that set marvel apart was setting their adventures not in in metropolis but in new york and having recognizable landmarks and i feel like this is sort of the equivalent of that mm. in some ways sort of but i mean the only thing that, that did kind of bother me about the movie the second time out was the feeling that they're just sort of meant to stand in for like a large racial stereotype of you know the evil islamic terrorist yeah and you just you don't get enough of of any sense of who or what they are to to get away from that broad stereotype like the mandarin the mandarin and his people do have causes and you find those out later but here they're just kind of they're the other they're the dark-skinned, fast-talking people who you don't understand, but they're scary because they have guns. Sure. Yeah, I'll buy that. They're not North, North Vietnamese communists, though. <laughs> <laughs> they, did, they did update the story a little bit. That, it ends up being like what, where you want to place the emphasis and what, what, where you want to spend your time in a, lot of, in a lot of respects in terms of like – I don't know if the film – the film is already – I think kind of bloated <laughs> as it is. I don't know if uh, um, we just got finished saying how fleet it felt. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it, 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 it's a fleet it's, it's, two it, hours. It's it's the right as they say. It's the uh, uh, it's the tightest uh, three hours and twenty minutes in show business or whatever that is. Um, also, you know, I don't necessarily need like Raza the sub villain to deliver a lengthy manifesto about yeah. how much he hates our freedom. But like one line somewhere, like no, I know. indicating what they're. I mean, we do find out what their cause is. Their cause is kill uh, Stark because you've been paid money to kill Stark, mm-hmm. but that's not where why the organization exists, no. and that's not why they want a Jericho missile. It's like I, I mostly just want to know what what they're going to do with the Jericho missile, blackmail somebody into giving them money or power or something. Yeah, I mean the film is just more intriguing or more interested in the American side of the equation and in whatever moral crises that 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 we might be going through. Um, um, and it'd be something we can kind of get into, but I don't know if you wanted to do that now or, or later, the politics of this thing. Sure, what? let's do it. All right, well, all right, there's a lot here, here, but I, I, you know, Iron Man strikes me as, you know, a fascinating document of where our heads were at with regard to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and the continued elusiveness of Osama bin Laden, who had not, who was still at large at the time, you know, on the one hand, Marvel is offering audiences this fantasy of a clear, simple solution uh, to a conflict that had turned into a quagmire. Uh, you know, rather than sticking our troops and machinery in Afghanistan for a messy war, uh, we have Iron Man, a hero who's better than 
any drone at recognizing hostiles and taking them out without collateral damage, which isn't something we can expect from targeted strikes or even drones. Uh, and on the other, uh, Iron Man warns against uh, the dangers of the military-industrial complex, uh, which it paints as this beast that must continue to be fed, you know, in a sector that a, pr- a private sector that is tantamount to war profiteering. But I think what it doesn't do, which this is something that I guess Captain America Civil War picks up on, is is wonder about you know the consequences of our global and national security being entrusted to one man, or in the or in the or in Civil War, I guess many many people, um, which is an interesting question too. But Iron Man, I think, is a pretty relevant film w- with regard to our, our misadventures in the in the Middle East, um, and it has you know a, f- a fairly nuanced and deliberate point of view on on these things yeah they could just set it up as as this will solve everything and they, and they don't you know is there is the the issue of escalation that's right there in the beginning and it's like you know uh he makes an iron man suit but then somebody else makes an iron man suit and, and a then bigger iron yeah man a bigger suit. iron man suit that it's uh that someone else can use you know although you still have the fantasy and and this becomes really really key you have the fantasy of like the arc reactor that only he knows how to make like once he Obadiah Stan has to steal his personal arc reactor to make the giant suit work and once he destroys that and oh, he's the only one that can make them again mm-hmm. like suddenly he has complete and full control of the Iron Man suit again I want to make actually just one more point about the war in Afghanistan because well, one of the re- big revelations um, in the in the movie and the one that ter- really turns Tony Stark around is noticing that his own weapons are being used against him and against American forces. And that, of course, is a real thing in Afghanistan because the United States funded bin Laden's war against, they funded you know, Af- Afghanistan and their conflict with, with the Soviet Union. And a lot of those weapons that were, that were used in that war and a lot, you know, the, all, of the, all of our support so was sort of turned against us. And so I think that it was a way that Iron Man could engage in that. And I think a pretty strong yet, yet subtle way, no? Yeah, and I think, I mean, it, you're, they're making very direct reference to Osama bin Laden and the Taliban hiding in the mountains. I mean, the whole idea of the Jericho missile mm-hmm. is you can bomb this entire mountain range at once. He specifically says, you know, with something like this, your enemies are going to go like deep into their caves and never come out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a very specific reference to what was going on politically at the time. And where we thought bin Laden was. Yeah. This is where he was. This is making me realize the parallel of Captain America, who was born of World War Two, you know, and, and I think it's interesting, the idea that, you know, specific conflicts birth a specific hero that reflects that conflict, you know, and Captain America being this ultra American, you know, hero in, in a, you know, coming out of a war that had a very different meaning than it does in the Afghan conflict and, and how Iron Man reflects that. Yeah. yeah, I think he's a pretty good projection of of where, uh, to use Scott's term, where, where our heads were at, where, or at least some of our heads were at, where it's like we're in this difficult situation, we're trying to figure our way out of it, and it's not easy, you know. And that's that's kind of you know, that's kind of stark situation in this movie. And what do you say to your other nickname, the Merchant of Death? That's not bad. Let me guess, Berkeley. Brown, actually. Well, Ms. Brown. It's an imperfect world, but it's the only one we've got. I guarantee you, the day weapons are no longer needed to keep the peace, I'll start making bricks and beans for baby hospitals. You rehearse that much? Every night in front of the mirror before bedtime. I can see that. I'd like to show you firsthand. All I want is a serious answer. Okay, you're serious. My old man had a philosophy. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. That's a great line coming from the guy selling the sticks. My father helped defeat the Nazis. He worked on the Manhattan Project. A lot of people, including your professors at Brown, 
call that being a hero. And a lot of people would also call that war profiteering. Tell me, do you plan to report on the millions we've saved by advancing medical technology or kept from starvation with our IntelliCrops? All of those breakthroughs, military funding, honey. Yeah, and there's no easy solution to the politics there, but his solution is to show up personally and personally shoot everybody who is a problem <laughs> while, as you say, while sparing yeah. all the civilians. I mean, like I registered during that scene where like all of these civilians are being held hostage and he uses his targeting computer to just kill all the bad guys. I mean, that's that's like out of top secret, like yeah. <laughs> just level of ridiculousness. And I registered that as a fantasy at the time and a power fantasy. I didn't associate it uh, as, as cl- closely as you did and as closely as I clearly should have with the collateral damage of drone strikes and the way you can hit anywhere but you don't know who you're going to be hitting in the in the interim yeah I mean this is this is su- this movie is such a wish in a lot of ways uh, mm-hmm. of just like uh, of the perfect of being, weapon uh, right, perfect weapon and being able to conduct a clean war mm-hmm. <laughs> like and, I mean and who knows I mean even even uh, uh, Robocop had trouble <laughs> identifying <laughs> who and who wasn't hostile Air- Iron Man has no issue with that at all I mean he, the, the, the the hostiles are very clearly uh, marked and he could take them out in a second. So, uh, But one uh, of the things that makes this movie so fascinating is that it is, I mean, it is exactly that kind of like raw, frustrated, real world political fantasy. And then it winds it like deeply into American consumerism and like a rock and roll lifestyle and mm-hmm. fame and popularity and being sexy. I mean, the Iron Man suit is sexy. He specifically sets out to make it as much like a race car as possible. Hot Rod Red. <laughs> he, and he, yeah, and he keeps, he keeps changing the design to make it sleeker and hot rodier and sexier. And it, just the degree to which sex is tied up in this film that has virtually no sex in it. And I find just hilarious, hilarious and kind of brilliant. I came on this revisit kind of thinking that, that John Favreau was, is an underrated player mm-hmm, in the Marvel, yeah. Marvel universe. Um, I think you can draw a straight line from him to Joss Whedon mm-hmm. and, and his take on the Avengers. Yep. Yeah. Maybe that also I've appreciated, you know, after jungle book, which I thought was pretty terrific, kind of appreciated him as a, as, as someone who can make a film look good, but, but also just, you know, there's some neat uh, features on the Blu-ray of, of, of him working with the cast and just sort of, rehearsing and improvising there's a lot of a lot of this was was sort of mapped out before filming started sort of you know, a lot of it was improv and, and and that sort of you know as an actor bring coming into this you know i feel like that's kind of what he brought to the table is sort of this let's make this an acting exercise as much when the missiles aren't flying let's have some real character and, and acting development here too and i think if the in someone else had had you know t- someone who didn't understand that had taken on this project i think it would have gotten off to a really really on a really wrong foot i mean by care comparison's sake i don't think the incredible hulk is a terrible movie the edward norton one but you know, Louis Leterrier doesn't necessarily have that same sort of gift for for uh, dramatics as as Favreau does, and I really appreciated that. There's also there's some deep silliness going on in this movie with the cameras. Mm. Like Favreau has fun with his camera work. He he has a tendency to when he sees something that's important pop in on it really quickly mm-hmm. like when Stark's looking at the the bomb with Stark Industries on it the camera just jumps in on it fast when he's looking at uh, for the uh, the other arc reactor I think there's another one of those like pop in moments he uses a lot of uh, you know the Dutch tilt to indicate like dizziness or queasiness the 
it, the camera just does some fun things in this movie. And I kind of think that it, it helps build the pop sensibility that is part of just kind of the jazzy feel of this movie. Well, and also just the setting the visual conceit of what Tony looks like inside the suit with the overlay of all mm-hmm. the, the displays on it like that. That is a choice, and that choice continued through all of these movies, and I think it works really well to be able to add some expressiveness to a character whose face is a a metal pane, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, no, that's 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 kind of essential. Otherwise, he do he does it just like a robot out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm interested in all these remarks because I'm I've never been that thrilled with Favreau as a as a filmmaker other than he's I think he's money baby he's a good he's <laughs> my, he doesn't even know it he kind of knows it this, he has to know it at this point he used to he didn't know it at the time but he was a big bear uh, but now he's a big bear so but what he does do what he is responsible for uh, is is setting the the template uh, f- for what a Marvel film is going to, to be uh, and to me that critical contribution which Keith alluded to uh, was the tone of the thing is is right it has a looseness and a sense of fun and you know the ability to kind of throw in some quips here and here and there that was a roadmap going forward and it didn't have to be i mean it, it, you know yes it was plotted out pretty heavily beforehand this is this is very much a producer's project this entire mcu um and that's again something i have misgivings about and we'll get into in the second half but this part of it this thing that he does have control over the performances uh the the tone the things that he does manage he manages extremely well so i I do give him credit for that yeah that mixture the mixture of of drama and humor that we get here i had forgotten some elements of it like i hadn't forgotten the banter with pepper or the fact that he's like this ridiculous sexist asshole who starts out the movie like making fun of a woman in uniform and that it's all played for laughs and it's all really really funny i had forgotten the robot reaction shots you know no no not jervis the the little uh the the pixar-esque arms arms reminds me of helper from uh the venture brothers i i there's some of that there's some of r2d2 in there and there's some of the pixar lamp like just the way they swivel and turn and and look at him and nod at times i had not remembered the robots being characters but there's there's just a lot of lightness in this movie that is at heart about one man's crisis of conscious PTSD and eventually killing his oldest friend. And that becomes so key to the MCU as we go forward and as we see all of these other superhero films from other companies that have not been able to nail that tone. Day 11, test 37, configuration 2.0. For lack of a better option, dummy is still on fire safety. If you douse me again and I'm not on fire, I'm donating you to City College. All right, nice and easy. Seriously, just going to start off with 1% thrust capacity. In three, two, one. Okay. Please don't follow me around with it either because I feel like I'm gonna catch on fire spontaneously. Just stand down if something happens then come in. And again, let's bring it up to 2.5, three, two, one. You can also imagine that this guy, Tony Tony Stark, isolated by his wealth and genius, you know, li- spending much of his time in this in this uh, workshop of of his, has designed all of these things as his friends, mm-hmm. right? His only friends, except for Pepper Potts, I guess. Um, and so, uh, to, to, and so, 
And who? Roadie. Who's which one's Roadie? <laughs> Terrence. Oh, uh, that's Howard, right. Oh, right. Who, okay. Yeah. Who becomes Don Cheadle. <laughs> <laughs> Magically becomes Don Cheadle. But there's something kind of kind of cute and sad about that. That these are his friends. Uh, he's there. These are his good friends who who are who are really expressive in our computers. I just reminded myself that you know going back to talking about what this film sets up is uh, it sets up. Paul Bettany as as Jarvis, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who who be, will become oh. the Vision. Uh, so th- that I mean, I'm certain that that wasn't in the cards a- at this point. But as, as uh, in terms of just casting, that that worked out well. <laughs> yeah, it did. I, I don't know. Oh I don't, it might have been in the cards. There's yeah. if you read the backstory of Iron Man, it is this is one of those miracle films. I mean, this is one of those films like like Brazil, where the more I read about it, the more I realize how many hundreds of versions of this film that there could have been, and like the history of this film trying to get made precedes Marvel Studios and the MCU and like that the entire idea by a really long time and there's so many different directors came on and left so many different actors were like being eyed for Iron Man so many different villains were written in and taken back out there were just there were a lot of plans for this movie over the course of more more than a decade all of which were thrown out to get like the specific movie that we got which is so much better than any of those previous ideas (laughs) sounded I mean, I, I would c- like to see Stuart Gordon or Quentin Tarantino's Iron Man at some point. We, we could have gotten <laughs> Quentin Tarantino's Iron Man starring Nick Cage. I mean, that would be a very Whoa. different movie. I, I, one other thing, I think this has, and, I, and by this, I mean this movie in particular, the best sort of romantic subplot. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I mean, Tony and Pepper are great in this movie, and, and they never. You know, it gets developed in later films, but never comes. But it's never as promising as it is in this movie, too. You know, it's it's really just nicely played between those those two. Uh, compared and compared to, uh, we'll get ahead of ourselves, but but you know, the the scintillating uh, chemistry between Steve Rogers and Sharon Carter is you know, <laughs> this, this this never build up thing that that this suddenly happens versus this slow burn. And this, it's uh, it's nice. It is, and it and it isn't. There's something about the relationship that, for me. Like I, I feel like I want to go back and watch the other Iron Man movies because I, I maybe it's just a question of feeling like that relationship developed into something more deeper and complex than it is here. And here we're just seeing kind of the nascent beginnings of it. But I mean, I find what you, what you were talking about, Scott, with him being kind of this like lonely and unattached man who makes robot friends. I, when he keeps sort of reaching out for Pepper and she keeps kind of going, yeah, whatever. Like I'm... I'm just never quite sold on on Gwyneth Paltrow in this role. I guess she's just controversial. Oh, yeah, I love no, her. I, I love mm. her in this movie. I don't she's... think I've ever liked her as much as I like yeah, her. Yeah, I was about to say the exact same thing. <laughs> I mean, I don't have. I'm not saying that she doesn't fit my conception of Pepper Potts because I have no conception of Pepper Potts because I have no association previously with the character. But there's like I just don't buy the. I buy the banter between them. I buy the employer employee relationship. I don't buy that there's some like great love there that's never quite consummated. Like she always seems that's to me like her, she's just kind of putting is that, is that, up is with that him. Patrick's fault. I like him in the role better than I like her in the role. Didn't you like the scene where where she shows <laughs> she shows his uh, date from the night before the door? <laughs> that's a pretty. That's oh no, that's I mean that's that's lovely. That's how I like her most is okay. at in that brisk, efficient way. And when she's bantering with him, when she's pushing him away, like that's one thing. When they start to get romantically close, like the scene on the balcony, which 
I mean, my understanding is a lot of this dialogue was improvised and he is a stronger improver than she is. I mean, she said in interviews she couldn't keep up. She didn't know what to say. He would say something and she wouldn't know how to respond and they'd have to reshoot. Mm-hmm. And I like in the balcony scene in particular, where she just kind of keeps repeating herself about the dress and her insecurities about the dress. Like there's just something in the character at that moment that I feel like is weaker than she is in her more scripted moments. That that business about, you know, I do anything he needs me to do, including taking out the trash. That is just a really sharply scripted mm-hmm. line. And listening to her say like eight times that she feels awkward about her dress just doesn't compare for me. I can see that. She's I, also I, off guard in that. She's caught off guard in that moment because she's not expecting him to be there, you know. So in, in the context of that situation, that played for me. But now that, you know, hearing you talk about her saying she, you know, was thrown in the improvising, like, I, I can totally see that is a reading of a, as a poor performance. But not knowing that, it just struck me as, oh, well, she wasn't expecting to see him here and she's flustered and... Well, let me let me look. Let me consider it from this vantage. Maybe it's really just a consequence of Robert Downey Jr. just taking all the oxygen in the room, mm-hmm. uh, because I because I think it's not. You know, if I'm going to poke holes at some of the supporting players, uh, I would be more inclined to go after Rhodes, for example, or yeah. even or Obadiah. I mean, Jeff Bridges, in my opinion, is the best living American actor. So no no one likes Jeff Bridges more than i do but i it's just a character that isn't given a whole lot to do doesn't make the kind of impression that you want him to make and and as i I think you have to casual though he's very very loungy villain you know he is he is and i think he is one really that one scene with with pepper Potts is super chilling yeah he's quite quite strong and i mean he's 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 the best actor alive he's going to do some some cool stuff but uh but terrence howard is somebody who uh, has that really smooth relaxed delivery that can be really seductive and sinister and stuff like hustle and flow and, and empire which i've seen <laughs> empire uh but it also can make him seem really bored yeah he's, he's <laughs> yeah. not good he's, he's really he's really seems disengaged here and i and you know and i think maybe in that case i'm going to put a little bit more, more of the onus on uh, terrence howard for really not uh being as into <laughs> play the role as he should have been but uh, but when you have a, a force of personality like Robert Downey Jr., it is very hard uh, to work out or to be democratic about it, which is actually kind of one of the miraculous things about uh, the Avengers and, and Captain America uh, Civil War is, is being able to have him there and be able to have a million other characters also make an impression here's an interesting thing about that scott if you watch the deleted scenes like we have the the two dvd set um i assume they're also on the blu-ray if you watch the deleted scenes on the dvd uh rody gets there's a scene where the two of them are in his in uh stark's jet and they've been drinking they're both drunk and he rody says something about the 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 uniform that i'm wearing like everybody wearing this uniform has my back in the deleted scenes it's longer and it's more of a manifesto and it's specifically about how being part of the military makes him part of something bigger and stronger and he specifically says to stark you could be like that you not it's not that you have to join the military but you could be more than you are right now you should be doing more with your life and he says not only do does everybody else wearing this uniform have my back i have their backs too and that's a terrific thing in that scene which they cut way 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 down to give more space to stark 
he's so emotional and he's he's delivering a manifesto of who he is and it's a really good moment and it sets up the arc of the film where iron man does become more than he is also in the deleted scenes is a scene where Obadiah Stane delivers his manifesto on why he does what he does and what he believes. And he's like pacing back and forth in front of the ironmonger suit as it's being built, explaining, you know, this is the new world order. This is what we want. A weapon like this comes along once in a lifetime and it's up to us to make the most of the chances we've been giving. And you can see in that sequence, like he goes very rapidly from like dialed down weapons manufacturer to crazed nut job in a metal suit. And you watch it happen in that scene and they cut both of those scenes. Mm. And it's good for the fleetness of the movie, but it's bad for the development of either of those characters. Just out of curiosity, who is he delivering that manifesto to Uh, in that scene? Himself. I mean, there are there are all these people there, the people that are working on the programming of the suit, the people who are physically building it there's no name character and it's not aimed at anyone he's literally pacing he's he's delivering it to himself okay so we should talk about the last scene so let's let's go back Do again you mean the post credits scene yeah 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 uh back to 2008 you're 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 watching this film maybe you leave during the credits maybe you know better uh maybe you're someone who always sticks around anyway and, and then all of a sudden the movie's not over yet nick fury played by samuel jackson shows up and talks about the Avenger Initiative, Avenger singular, Avenger Initiative. Um, what is? What are you thinking at the time? I mean, at the time, hadn't they already said that they were planning on that? Like, I I don't remember when he signed his like eight film deal, but I remember being told like by all of the promotional material, stay in the theater, watch hmm. the last scene. And being told to anticipate him specifically as Nick Fury, like I feel like that was hugely built up, which is weird because that was basically advertising for advertising for the next film. And at the same time, you're being delivered a promise in that moment. I mean, you're you're being delivered a promise that's not just this was a great film. You're going to get another great film, but like, dude, this is this is just the beginning. Yeah, the sky's the limit. It's not just James Bond will be back in Octopus. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It, It is. You're going to see. You know, this whole world's opening up, and I think it's really—it's kind of unprecedented. We're gonna—we're gonna get into pros and cons of the MCU, I think, in, in the next half. But but it feels like, if nothing else, we should just appreciate the, the audacity of, of of this moment and 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 the way it's been uh, delivered on, and also the audacity of bringing in Sam Jackson mm-hmm. for uh, like ninety seconds. Sure. And uh, I, that just reminded me the, that all the shields set up in, in with Coulson. This is the first uh, sure. time we see we see Coulson, and I don't necessarily like how important Shield eventually became in the MCU. And it, but it's almost presented as a joke here uh, via Coulson and, and Clark Gregg's performance. And so I think I knew that Nick Fury tied into that character in some way. But I think that was the extent of my knowledge so, of, of what was happening there. But I just didn't want to let the conversation end without bringing up Clark Gregg and the introduction of that character. Yeah, that poor would... Clark Gregg. No one talks about <laughs> poor Clark Gregg. Um, well, it's interesting because it's, it's like, you know, at the time, now it's like, oh, there's Coulson. But at the time it's like, oh, there's there's veteran character after what's his name again, you know? And he's got such a, a cute presentation throughout that film. I mean, he's puckish. Yeah. And from what I've read, he was, he was like assigned a much, much smaller role. And they just liked his chemistry so much and that that is a classic joss whedon move even though whedon wasn't involved in this it's exactly the kind of thing that he did all the time you know this guy's fun let's put him in more and more and more and more of the movie and now he gets his own spinoff i i'll put a dark turn on, on this whole thing <laughs> and then it and then it kind of and then it sort of feeds this 
culture of anticipation, you know, and then you and you have a lot of yeah, these. We're getting into the cons. We're just just appreciating the audacity right, right. right now. I like the audacity. We, we, uh, can, yeah. we can we can you can put a shadow over. I'll join you. I have I have misgivings too. We'll okay. put all that. All, all right, the I'll save half. it. I'll save it. <laughs> just, keep just anticipate that that's what's going to happen in the second half. <laughs> Two days from now, you'll two get days to hear. from now you'll hear <laughs> no, griping I'm, from me. No, I'm 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 not all sunshine and rainbows on this uh-huh. either. But I just I do appreciate that it, it yep. is um, something new and interesting. Interesting that had uh, that was uh, set up in this moment. Yep. Second half, pessimism. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for feedback. Thanks to everyone who wrote in about our pairing of John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct Thirteen and Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room. One of the most interesting responses suggested the connections didn't come from any kind of direct influence. Scott, would you like to share this with us? Uh, Sure. Uh, Mac in Alexandria, Virginia, wrote in with some details gleaned from a screening of the film and the presence of Saunier and the filmmaker's family. Uh, Here he goes. Uh, Mac says, A fun fact I learned at the Q&A after a DC screening of Green Room. Jeremy Saunier hadn't seen Assault on Precinct 13 until post-production on Green Room. He'd been hearing a lot about it in reaction to his script and didn't want to crib too much if he watched it first. He did cop to being very consciously influenced by Straw Dogs, however. I wasn't sure how much he'd spoken about that and thought I'd pass along. The other highlight of the evening was sitting behind an entire row of Sonia's friends and family and witnessing the reactions of his quite elderly relatives. <laughs> be a tough. Uh, I would not want to show... Maybe he's got a cool, cool elderly rollout. Yeah, I, I think we need more cool. detail. I think uh, Mac in Alexandria, Virginia, needs to write in with with more anecdotes about exactly what that was like. Oh God! But I, you know, I don't know. Uh, you made the Straw Dogs connection, and we did. In I think yeah, we, it was think one of the films we considered. I think it was one that we just, you know, I mean that that didn't really want to dig into at the, that particular time. That one with James Woods. Oh my God, I forgot about the That got remade. Um, I relate to the idea of, uh, I don't don't want to see this film that sounds like my film because then I might not be able to make my film. Yeah. Because I mean, I've had that experience with uh, reading other people's reviews. I really try not to read anybody's reviews before I've written mine because there was a point in my critical career where I'd I'd be like, well, let's see what everybody else thought. So like I know where I'm positioned and then I'd be like, well, I can't use this phrasing that I was thinking of. And now that idea sounds like really, repetitive you can't can't see what other people have done if you're going to do something similar because it can cripple you it's crazy to me though if you're a genre enthusiast that you will not have seen you know that and you're making a film in that vein that you would not have seen assault of precinct 13 i mean i hadn't gotten around to it the world is big and there are many many things in it and it's good to have an excuse to see it that's bedrock carpenter Tasha, do you have another letter for us? I do. A listener named Carolyn wanted to dig a little deeper into the politics of Green Room. She writes, You mentioned that the politics of Green Room aren't meant to bear much scrutiny, and I agree that they're there more for flavor than anything, but I wonder if that's really responsible on Sonier's part, to evoke white supremacy as an idea, but not deal with whiteness or race. The moment in the film that struck me the most was when the punks elect Anton Yelchin to speak for them as they negotiate with Stewart's character, Darcy. Only white kids would have the option of negotiating with literal white supremacists, and I couldn't help but think about the extent to which their whiteness impacted the violence between the two groups. I wondered if this was something you noticed, or if you thought the film was better for not exploring it more explicitly. I, for one, would have appreciated if at least one of the punks were a person of color— who have always fought for representation in even left-wing punk circles. Not so they could make some sort of speech about race, but just to make the use of white supremacy feel more earned. It seems to me that there are almost two different points of criticism. One, one I think, is uh, is maybe a little stronger than the other. The casual evocation of 
white supremacy is maybe a troubling aspect of the film. I would agree to be, to, you know, that the, a lot of these, you know, symbols and, and uh, uh, beliefs and behaviors, they're not dealt with in a, in a very uh, substantial way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think there, there's a strong point as far as, as persons of color. I almost think that would confuse the matter in a not productive way. I think it would be a, a completely different film um, than, than the one that, uh, he has made here. I th- I, if, I, I, I'm just thinking of the dynamic of like, what if Anton Yelkin was a person of color? What would that would change the film enormously? Mm-hmm. Would it make it better? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, to me, one of the one of the powerful things about Green Room is the arbitrariness of it all. I mean, it's meant to be a horror film. The, the horror of it is meant to be anybody could have stumbled into this situation. And when you get the idea of a person of color in a punk band performing for a bunch of white supremacists, suddenly you're outside that this could happen to anyone and into a, a situation that's almost poetically ironic. It would have made it a, a different film in some very interesting ways, I think. But I think that Sonia is going for something fairly specific here about the ordinary horror of it all. I, I, I think that evoking white supremacy casually kind of goes into the same place as evoking Nazism casually without, you know, mentioning mm-hmm. Jewishness at all in in a story. You're just kind of saying, by the way, these guys are evil. We can all agree they're evil, right? Yes, let's move on. And it's a casualness that maybe doesn't benefit the story, but like uh, going deep into the politics here, I'm not sure that would have helped either. I think she makes a really good point about, about only white kids would have the option of negotiating. But then I think as 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 Scott pointed out, without that element, you have a very different film too. Uh, you know, what is something more directly confrontational? I, I don't I don't know they would ever, you know with um with a person of color in the band. I don't think they would have played the gig. And I think part of it is about at least a little bit about how these kids have to think about how easily they can drift into this uh in, in the circles they travel in. In some ways, uh, I agree though that the politics could could have been. A little more sharply stated, uh, it's, it's all it is a little superficial. I mean, I feel like the reason that they they open with Nazi punks f off is specifically because they're aware of their white privilege and being there, and they they want to make a statement. Even though we're white, we don't agree with you. Mm-hmm. Like even though we can walk into this circumstance where we all relate to each other through the music that we like, we still are not down with with who you are. And it's like a small act of defiance, but it's it's an act of defiance. <laughs> and they would have gotten away with it too if it were not for those uh, that dang murder. Yeah, the murder, right? The murder, not the crazy kids, but that murder. Just for what it's worth, that question, like so many of these questions, is edited down. We posted the full version of it on our Facebook account and got some really interesting discussions back and forth about how having a person of color in the story might or might not have worked and might or might not have changed it. So like, I encourage people to seek that out. Well, how would they do that, though, Tasha? They could go to facebook.com slash show. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 please do. We like getting those. Or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on our website. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll tackle Captain America, Civil War, and the current state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and superhero movies in general. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. 
Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until that, we'll be working on our arc reactors here at the Next Picture Show Laboratory. We hope you'll join us when we return. <laughs>